Good evening, Open Table. All right, I'm Garrett Brown. I'm on the core leadership team here at the Open Table, and I'll be moderating our awesome panel tonight. Um, I want to say, this is fresh air. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs> if you don't know who Terry Gross is, then maybe we can just see me afterwards. Yeah, fresh air. Okay. Well, uh, I do want to, full disclosure, uh, one of our panelists had to leave, Jamie. Uh, Rubenstein uh, had a, a child get sick and had to go, and so we will um, maybe reference a photo of her work, but she won't be joining us for the panel, but that's okay. Family first, right? right. So we're going to get into things here. I'm going to have a seat and introduce our panelists. Um, real quick, my interest here, I love talking to people and having people talk to me about their lives and the things they're passionate about, so when I got the chance to interview and ask the questions for this panel, I jumped at the opportunity. I'm an art educator um, for the Liberty School District. Thank you, Victoria. Fire, fire safety. <laughs> um, I teach at a place called Epic, which is a pilot school, and I work in arts integration, trying to push the fine arts into classrooms for everyday learning. And uh, so this is particularly of interest to me, talking about how we can use art to impact uh, the worlds around us in a positive, long-lasting way. And so I'm going to introduce our panelists tonight. Immediately to my right is Tyler Galloway. He's an associate professor and chairperson of the graphic design department at KCAI. Uh, he's passionate about design for social change, which he pursues through his studio, The New Program. Recent professional work has centered on visual identity and support materials for the stand-up KC. It's Kansas City's conception of the international uh, low-wage worker movement. But perhaps just as important, Tyler loves riding bikes, punk rock, vegan cookies, being a husband and a dad. So, in full disclosure, he designed our new branding, like the stickers, the t-shirts, uh, all the things that we've been offering to you, the merch in the bag. This is Tyler's work. So, welcome to the panel, Tyler. Let's give him a hand. Anthony Marcos Ria is a multidisciplinary artist, educator, and organizer, born and raised on the west side of Kansas City, Missouri. He's a participant in uh, as a participant in a desegregating public school system through the 1990s, he graduated and conducted studies at UMKC under the photographer Professor Bill Gaskins until Anthony migrated to Chicago in 1999. Now he continues his studies uh, at the School of Art in Chicago, and he maintained a focus in photography, performance, video, and visual communication, where he received his BFA. Concurrently, he began working in community-based arts organizations, institutions, and literacy programs in Chicago, where he focused on something very near and dear to my heart, arts integration programs, youth development, and community arts projects centered on youth and community empowerment, identity, race, and representation. Uh, if you check out his work online, a lot of it focuses on identity, uh, male identity specifically, uh, queer identity, um, you know, um, social class, uh, some really beautiful work, beautiful images. So welcome to the panel, Anthony. It's good to have you. I'm sorry so loud. Oh, no, it's good. <laughs> you know, we have to do these bios this way to brag about how awesome you all are. So just bear with us. And um, Nika Renee is a poet, community organizer, and self-published author from Kansas City, Kansas. She's the founder of Soul Centricity. Uh, and there's a play on words that Soul Centricity uh, it's collective located in the historic racial dividing line of Truce Avenue, and it features handmade items by local black women artisans. She currently serves as a sponsored poet for uh, the Poetry for Personal Power, 
and is a freelance project consultant with the Women on the Rooftop Collective. We're honored to have you here, Nika. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Now that that's out of the way, we can get to the questions. Um, this series is called Arts as Activism, and I thought we'd start at the top just by defining what it is that we're talking about. Um, whoever wants to jump in first, I'm going to ask that you just pass the mic to each other. How would you define art as activism concurrently in the past, in your life, however you want to define it? I guess I'll say something. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So art as activism. I, I think for me that art as activism was, is really about um, centering communities um, around community issues and concerns. And I, and I think that has a lot to do with the work that I, I've done, I was introduced to, I was sort of trained in. Um, it was really about working with people. And, and that's how I always uh, understood it and practiced it myself. Um, I, I don't think I ever said I was an activist in that particular kind of way, but it was, it was the activism, if there ever was, the one that I would do. Um, and so... Um, so yeah, I, I guess it's, it's, it's community-centered for me. Um, I see art as activism because art is always at the center of activism movements. Um, it creates the symbols that kind of bring people together, um, unite people. You're able to kind of communicate um, a lot of things, a lot of really powerful things um, within one art piece. Um, and so it's always been at the center of different community movements, um, the symbols that people wear on their T-shirts, um, what the things, the symbols that people hold up on their um, canvases or their picket signs um, have always been an essential part and have always become like the icons of what the movements have been. So, um, and it's also a really powerful way to get to like kind of compel people or move people um, out of complacency or move people onto the same side of something as well, um, especially with like um, spoken word and. Um, poetry, those sorts of arts um, have always been a really good way to kind of empower people and, and move people. That's um, the way that I see art as activism. Present. I guess I'll show my sort of academic tendencies because the, the very first thing I thought of when you know, looking at this question, how would you define art as activism? I was like, all right, what's the definition? You know, how do you like make a Merriam-Webster entry? And I was thinking, okay, it's creative communication that has a social or political agenda or objective. So yeah, that's fine and good and it's all, you know, it's dry and whatever. So I prefer your guys' answers. <laughs> um, but I would say to be more personal about it, like I think about the things I was exposed to growing up and, you know, the kind of mention of punk rock and things like that. and. Um, that it was always this sort of creativity that was also doing something else. You know, it was not just um, nothing against art for art's sake because we need that, but it was being creative and being musical or being visual, but also for these greater ends, which I thought was really amazing. Like, oh, you can say something important with this, you know, and that's what really struck me and, and the fact that you can, that there's this duality inherent in that, that you can be creative, but also you can point it toward these things that could make a difference, you know, that you could do something bigger or better uh, through that creative expression. So I think that duality for me is what is, is really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for those answers. 
these candles. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we can get more specific about the movements that we've seen nationally or in Kansas City. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> it's pretty. But it's, not it's not practical. Pretty, but not practical. Yeah. Uh, if we could get specific about the movements that we're seeing in Kansas City or in the nation that you see art as the biggest part, one of the big parts about it. Um, some come to mind. And even if you go back to maybe to, I think about childhood and the first examples I saw of art being used as activism, my mind goes immediately to a video for We Are the World or something I saw on MTV. And I think that was the first time I was like, oh, this is a song, but it's like for something. You know, and that kind of falls into that category. But what examples do you see today uh, maybe locally or prominently in the nation. Nico, you mentioned some stuff. I knew some things came to mind. One of the really inspiring, it's not necessarily in Kansas City, um, but some of the border wall art, I think, has been really inspiring for me. And just like the impact that it's had, you know, some of the images that you kind of see on TV. So an issue that's really um, kind of like significant for today's um, culture. Um, just put you know the erection of a wall <laughs> and the and the symbolism of even that of like putting up a wall and just having like renegade artists like nobody really asks permission to I'm sure <laughs> to create art on this wall um, but just some of the images are really beautiful and if you haven't googled border wall art um, that's one of the really impactful pieces of art right now to me um. I guess locally, the first thing that comes to mind are just that, you know, I guess selfishly the things that I'm involved in, you know, the uh, stand-up KC and and the the stuff that's been happening, the opportunities that that provides that that has been, a, you know, part of their efforts for the past seven years. Um, but I also think about other groups that are, you know, newer and coming up and, you know, KC tenants. All those, like, all those movements need um, people, need creative people to kind of visualize that struggle, you know, to provide some unity, to provide a sense of pride in, in what they're doing, um, and to get that message out there in a visual way. So I think about those two groups locally. Um, that's the first stuff that comes to mind. Um, <coughs> uh, you know, I, I, um, when, I, when I first moved back to the city, I, I really didn't know, you know, anybody. Um, it's been about 17, eight, 17 years in Chicago, and and that's where I grew up, like professionally. Um, and that those were my peers. That was the work that we did. And so moving here was it was a sudden kind of thing that I didn't plan to make art coming back to the city. Uh, I didn't. But that move wasn't centered around that. Um, and so after a while, I was like, Oh my God, I need to get back to my life, you know. And so looking around and trying to find people. Um, um, even even initiating or instigating individuals here and there to to collectively work together, you know, uh, I'm trying to push a couple uh, muralists that I know to create a, a muralist collective. Um, but the idea of working together, um, I'm still learning about the city, and so I, I don't have any exact um, examples in the city. But I'll, I could talk about a couple artists who are very good friends of mine, but also are doing some really amazing work. Um, and it's uh, around uh, activism. I have a friend of mine, but William Estrada is doing these really amazing um, art carts um, inspired by the palateros, palateros and um, street uh, vendors. 
um, propping up and creating um, uh, T-shirts, but centered around the neighborhood and community about dreams and wishes and wants and, and futures and so forth. Um, and other works um, by a very good friend of mine, Maria Gaspar, who was looking at social justice, uh, criminal justice reform and exploring like the acreage around Cook County Jail in Chicago. And so she has this project, 96 Acres, um, that is, is really about the inside and outside, the narratives that go, that are really happening. But it's all, both works are really centered in the conversation with other people, um, with those community members, whether locked up or visiting lawyers or um, uh, police officers having to work there. Um, <clears throat> to community residents just walking down the street and saying, I'm going to get a free printed T-shirt here, um, and, and then contribute to what my neighborhood might look like. Um, it, it's those, I think those, when those things happen, and it is happening here in the city, I just don't know those artists just yet, I'm still learning, but um, you know, it's just, those become really exciting, and and th those those moments, those those actions, those whatever they might be, um, be, I guess before it was socially engaged, it was just community-based art making. Um, it was what happened during the civil, um, civil rights movement when at churches and, and so forth, people having to do something with the kids during the Chicano rights movement when when people had to make posters and, and had to eat all at the same time, you know. And so people were cooking and making art and making food and. There was this collaboration, this community that happened. It, it, those those examples is kind of where I maintain the work that I've done, but where I start looking at for other inspiration with other with other artists and other people. Um, what are we doing, like kind of like collectively? Um, and so I get, do get excited when you see a group of artists just coming together, you know, and and making something, but not just being the artist. It's so easy just to be the artist. It's it's also how do we bring others into it? How do we bring everyday everyday mom and dads, brothers and sisters, aunts who just aren't going to go to a gallery or just aren't going to go check out a museum? How do we invite them in there to contribute to add to their the beautification of their own community outside of a panel or presentation of let's collect ideas, but actually participate in that construction or that that making of of things with people. That's a really rich response, and I appreciate it. I was going to ask a follow-up question, but you kind of got us there. Art can often feel very elite. Like, if you're not trained to do it, you shouldn't be doing it. If you don't know how to talk about it, maybe sometimes it's not very welcoming. What can we do? You kind of mentioned, Anthony, an education piece and a community focus that has to be present for it to stay um, art as activism. What can we do as educators, as artists, um, quote unquote, on the street to make sure that it stays accessible and welcoming and um, broadly kind of available for everyone? What can we do to make sure the art is still focused on the people? So maybe Nika. Um, for me, like making art accessible, um, I think it's all about like empowering the next gener generation of artists. Um, as you know, one thing, and then also kind of you know everybody can write poetry. I I believe everybody can. You know, you might not like do it on a regular basis, um, and so it's just kind of like empowering, inspiring, and facilitating ways for people to create art themselves. Because um, it can also be very healing, which I think is another reason that it's such a um, powerful tool for activism, especially poetry um, itself can be very healing for people to create. It can be healing for people that read it. 
Um, and so when we're thinking of like restorative justice and um, things like that, it's it can be like a healing um, mechanism. So. I have this. I have this. I don't know what you call it. It's, it's a sort of a bad relationship with with the notion of high art and low art and you know art in relation to design. What do you guys think of when you think about when you think of high art? Where wh where does that where does that happen? And museums, right? College museums. College. <laughs> and I think that when people think about like the best art, it happens in, to me it's about spaces, right? It's about architecture and where we, where we expect to see that stuff. And I think we expect to see all the best art in a museum. And you touched on it earlier, Anthony, that I don't think a lot of people you know, have the time or <laughs> space in their life to make a special trip to the museum. Now that said, you know, the 30 Americans exhibit at the Nelson was amazing and it brought a whole nother group of people that don't normally make the time or effort to go see art to go see it but it was still in you know the hallowed halls of the museum and then the next you know tier down you have galleries and you know I'm sad to say that I think that that whether purposefully or not that the art academy and other colleges st still tend to like have that as their aspiration for for where the best art appears and I think we need to, as educators, you know, I think we're obliged to figure out ways to turn that on its head or to say these other spaces, whether it's the, you know, murals on the street or posters or whatever, or poetry or whatever f other forms of art that are happening in more public spaces are just as valid, if not more valid, because they are more accessible. And I don't know, it just frustrates me that, <laughs> that we have and, and we still continue to perpetuate this kind of hierarchy and, and it makes me angry that that these these forms of art that are sort of in nooks and crannies and, and forgotten spaces or whatever that those are the things that aren't going to be seen, but they're but they are seen, you know, by people that maybe don't matter, quote unquote, right, or common people. And to me, that stuff has a ton of value, and I think that we need to figure out ways to to hold that up. And um, I'm I was sitting next to Julia Cole over here who. Uh, works for the Charlotte Street Foundation, and part of their rocket grant uh, application process is centered on location, which I think is awesome because that's a way for a formal, a formal art-making institution or art-granting institution to say, we want you to put your art in non-traditional spaces, and that's a priority. So I think that's one step in Kansas City where you know there's a group that's saying, we recognize that we need to make things more accessible and we need to get them out into alternative spaces, whether it's libraries or community centers or on the street or, or in parks or whatever, um, so more people can see that stuff. Yeah, just a great answer. I'm thinking about social media and how its impact kind of breaks down some of these walls and some of these access issues that uh, you all have mentioned. I've definitely seen poets on Instagram and I've definitely been, um, exposed to visual artists and designers through um, I'm thinking more Instagram because I feel like that's more like image based and kind of uh, more focused on that than maybe Facebook and catching up with long long distance family and all the ridiculousness on there but how do you see the internet and specifically social media impacting these issues of taking art into more spaces and education and how maybe your students or your constituents would even be exposed to this? How, how do you see the long-reaching implications? 
maybe we've already answered this, but. I don't know, yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I think that, um, um, I mean, we use it and we show it and we'll share the work um, through it. Um, as working in community and with, and with students, I'm always throwing them on, on Instagram. Um, I probably shouldn't, but um, <clears throat> but, nonetheless, but nonetheless, it happens, and we're sharing their work in um, in those ways. But there's been some really interesting stuff that I've been playing with my students, just because I just discovered it. Um, I, I'm sure it's been around for a while, but like Street Views and, and Google Street View and things like that, we can like enter spaces, which become really is really really interesting. You know, um, I'm trying to see how many spaces we can actually enter. Um, but um, but um, I'm, I'm kind of doing a class right now with students where we're using social media to kind of respond to the, our community and that be the place that we're, we're putting the work and, and to place it there, um, but also to also learn how to even use it. You know, so much of social media and our technology that's in our hands and our tablets is, is being spent on just consuming. Um, but how can we make with it, you know? Specifically black and brown youth. Um, poor youth, um, working class youth, um, because there's all these great stories about youth, you know, doing something that's really cool on Twitter, but, you know, um, they're predominantly white youth, which is great, you know, but it's, I'm, I'm, my students have phones and tablets too, and I want them to use it, use Twitter create, creatively, you know, and so what can we do with it? Um, so I don't know, just seeing, just, I don't know. I don't know, I guess it's a big question, but just trying things. For me, I think social media is a is a, a really amazing, like quick delivery tool for art. So I could, you know, write a poem right now. I actually do write a lot of poems onto Facebook. Like <laughs> it's it's been spinning around my head and I just like type it straight onto my Facebook page and it's out into the world. And so it's like that like really quick delivery system I think is super like I don't know if that's ever existed before. I mean, except for like running around and like talking to people on the streets, like telling them your poetry, <laughs> which a lot of poets did. Um, but yeah, I think that's a powerful tool, um, you know, to be able to build a following and have like curate this whole audience of people that are all over the world um, to be able to like deliver your art to on a regular basis. I think it's really impacting. Yeah, I was thinking in terms of Tyler, some of the work you do with um, graphic design specifically and lettering, some of these skills students pick up with, through social media apps. It's kind of like the things that maybe I learned in the early 2000s or late 90s on a computer. Now it's like an app will do it for them automatically. And it, it seems like it's an equalizer in some ways. If they're trying to make a poster or a graphic to get a message across in a simple, strong way, there's a little less work involved for them. So uh, any feelings about that? Or it's great. I think it's great, but it also ups the bar in terms of how you stand out, right? Like if everyone has all these democratizing tools, which is great, you know, that's the nice thing about technology. It's this this neutral thing, and you can use it for, you know, good or ill. Um, but if you have the same 500 fonts that everyone else has, you know, how do you make something that looks a little unique or different? Um, and a lot of times for me, the answer to my students is, you know, if, if you want to if you want something that references a typewriter, you know, that references old news or reportage or whatever, go find a typewriter, you know, because it's going to be different. It's going to look different than a typewriter font. Um, you know, go the extra mile to, to tweak something or customize it or make it by hand or, you know, generally get off the computer. 
<laughs> because if you're using the same tools everyone else is using, then it's going to generally look like it's in the same ballpark as what everyone else is doing. So that's, for me, the, the main thing that I try to tell students. Like, we got to figure out different tools, different processes to be able to grab people's attention differently. And then you can put that, you can put that stuff back into the computer, back on social media, you know, to, to push it out there. I love it. I mean, I know a little bit about what you do uh, with your work in design, but when I, we sat down for a t-shirt meeting a while back, and what I thought I saw in your proof was I thought you had, like, found a font and just had this really cool font for the t-shirt, and then you explained how you had folded pieces of paper and you had photographed the pieces of paper, and then those were scanned in. It was this extremely intricate and, uh, you know, long like a time-consuming process, and I was, and then I looked at the shirt again with fresh eyes and realized that absolutely you were backing up what you told your students that to stand out for this shirt to embody the message that we're trying to put across with the open table. You were willing to go to these extreme lengths to really just make something that we won't see it on any other T-shirt anywhere because uh, you made it, you know, whole cloth from kind of from scratch. So that was great. Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about white supremacy. <laughs> I didn't have a good segue, so I thought I'd just do that. Um, we've we've kind of danced around this, and uh, you know, this is a safe place. We talk about this stuff often here, um, but we need commu communal healing. We need um, a way for art to address some truly nasty things in our nation, and we've seen, I don't know, can you call a MAGA hat art? I don't know, but we've seen some images take on a certain mythology in our country, right? How do, we, how do we fight that negative mythology with new positive icons? Have you seen it happening? Um, who's, who's doing work to, to counter that that you're seeing um, locally, nationally? Maybe drop some names, put some people on that maybe we haven't heard of, some things for us to check out. Um, I mean, this is kind of cliche, we just talked about the 30 Americans exhibit, but I think Yehindi Wiley is one of the artists that I've seen um, that's been kind of challenging white supremacy, like taking these very whitewashed historical images um, and redoing them with black people. Like seriously, he walks up to people on the street in New York like, hey, can I use your picture for a painting? <laughs> and they're like this million dollar painting. Um, and so one, you know, like just regular everyday people, just, you know, not like, aristocracy or you know wealthy people or anything like that that um, he's putting into these art pieces and then taking you know images of black men and black women and etching them into these really historical pieces um, that you know mostly black people have been erased from there's a lot of erasure and um, art history um, that we're just not present there so I think that's one really good way um, I'm trying to look at that or one really good artist that is challenging white supremacy um, in that way. Um, I think also um, we spoke to, I don't know if this is the last question, like art as activism or communal healing. I think that's really one way is like to heal ourselves is a really good way to challenge white supremacy. Like not always centering like white people and fighting against this thing constantly because that's really exhausting and not very good for our mental health all the time. Um, and so just like healing ourselves and centering ourselves and focusing on ourselves. Um, I always like, I can't remember who said it, um, but somebody who compared like creating art to um, kind of like an herbalism. If you 
um, need an herb to heal a condition in your body. You need an herb that grew up in those conditions. And so like calamus grows up in like really swampy areas and it's really good for bloating in your body because it develops the medicine to the condition it grows in. And so I remember somebody comparing art artists to that. It's like you kind of develop the medicine for the conditions you grow up in and then you put that medicine into your art. And so it heals you when you make it and then it heals the people that look at it. You know, they get the medicine for that thing. And so really just like creating our stuff, like making our voices heard um, so that we're not like victims of erasure um, and then just healing ourselves really is, that's how I fight white supremacy. <laughs> uh, I think I bonded or quickly or rebonded with Cecilia um, over a, a professor of ours from UMKC back in the day. Um, uh, his name was Bill Gaskins, is Bill Gaskins, photographer, educator, and an amazing, amazing photographer. But um, um, what was really, what stood out for me and why he was important was because he gave me a language. He provided a language, a resource of, of books and writers and, and so forth that I needed to be friends with, literal, literal, I mean, what this? You got my, I'm, I, like I'm mixing it up, you but you, you know what I'm saying, love? All right, so, um, <laughs> but like literacy, literally, like in literature. There we go. Okay, but not literally, but literacy. Yeah, um, and so, <laughs> and so it was. It was about having that information and how we fight this thing so we can navigate and breathe and 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 not be stuck in this muck. Is, um, is that we have information. Uh, we know there's words that we can say to communicate the thing that we feel. Um, and it, it kind of takes me back. Uh, Madison, who I've had the pleasure of working with uh, uh, briefly, um, is um, we had a student and we were showing um, some poets um, and talking about, um, I think maybe white supremacy, maybe it was, was right, but white supremacy or, or gender issues or whatever it was. And she was just, you know, she was blown away, this young lady. And, and she's like, you know, I, I never heard people talk about this. And I'm like, darn, I messed up because we should have been talking about this whole time. But it, it was, but it was that thing that she needed because she's, she experienced it. She is experiencing it. Um, and she needed a language to identify it so it doesn't control you. Um, and I think when art is able to provide that for people, um, when it, media is able to provide that, provide that for people, I was thinking of um, um, Spike Lee series now on Netflix. Um, and yes, oh my God. Anyway, so um, and she goes to that art retreat, right? And like all these artists, I was in love, you know? I was like, oh my God, I want to go too. But it was, it was this thing, and, and so I was watching it with my niece, and she's like, who are these people? I was like, these are like for real people, you know? And we were just having this great little conversation, but it was this idea that if, if you're given the information, you're given that resource, the, the, the idea, that language, that verbiage, whatever, so you can identify the thing this thing, this white, this thing called white, white supremacy, um, oppression, race, racism, all of it um, doesn't own you no more. Well, not as much, but it, it's it, you can you can you can control um, how you experience it. I think. Um, I'm always thinking about things from you know through that design lens uh, and also through that educator lens, and and I think. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind when thinking about how do you start to combat 
white supremacy is that we need to get more young people, we need to encourage more young people of color that they can do this, that they can be creative, and that that's a worthwhile way for them to spend their time um, and nurture them through that educational process. And if they end up in college, that's awesome. And as a college instructor, my job is to encourage those students of color just as much as any of the white kids that are there and to celebrate their voice and to celebrate and encourage what they're doing. And, um, you know, it, really the end result there, the end goal is to just get a, wide, a greater diversity, a wider range of voices out there into the world that, that center themselves, like you were saying, you know, it's part of self-healing um, to be able to talk about their experiences, their cultures, to share those things, the things that they're making that are reflective of their heritage, their culture, their voice, their opinions. Um, and we need to start to, you know, we got to overcompensate for, <laughs> we could probably overcompensate for what, 400 years, you know, to get some real equality, <laughs> some legitimate equality. Uh, so we got a lot of making up to do. Um, yeah, that's, that's the main thing I think about is, is encouraging and celebrating those students and, and getting those voices out there. Um, and, you know, I think that it's hard for students to see um, all these people that are not like them, that are held up as role models, like in design history or in art history. Um, and they're, those students, and I've heard it time and again, that they're hungry for professionals out there in the creative fields that they can look up to, like, oh, that person is like me. And there's actually a movement that's been going on for probably the past five years or more of uh, decolonizing design and decolonizing design history. And so we need, we're looking, um, design historians are looking more outside of the canon, you know, the European white kind of canon for these creators. Um, I teach a class called Visual Advocacy for, for the seniors and um, we try to share a, a diverse range of people who are working in design as activism. So Fabiana Rodriguez is one that comes to mind. She's a printmaker and poster artist. I believe she's based in LA. She's amazing and women-centric and Latino-centric. And, um, and then uh, we talk a little bit more historically about, um, oh geez, I just forgot his name, Minister of Information for the Black Panther Party, Emory Douglas. Um, I share the student with the students Emory Douglas and the efforts that he made in publishing I think for 12 or 13 years the designer and illustrator of the Black Panther Party publication on a national level. So to be able to kind of dig those resources out and share with the students and hold them up and say these people are legit, you know, and to give them those role models I think is really important. That's an excellent response. Thank you so much, Tyler. We've got time for a couple of like rapid fire lightning round questions. Um, if someone here wants to be involved in activism, art is activism specifically, and they're not creatives, they're not artists, mm -hmm. how do you suggest they support or get involved or find themselves being allies? How can they get in? Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> say that again in the mic. Donate. Um, find you an arts organization or whomever to, to, to offer that money. It doesn't have to be a lot, just whatever. Um, that's the easy one, right? That's the easy fix. Um, but yeah, I would say donate if you can, where you can. I would, I'm gonna co-sign to that. And then also say, hire artists for your events. 
Um, so if you have something that you're doing, maybe incorporate art into that. Um, hire if you're hiring at your workplace, hire artists at your workplace. You know, give them a job and then let them create their art um, while they're there. Um, those are really you know important things. Even create art for your organization or for your things. Really give them a space um, to be able to support themselves and to do what they do. Um, and I think that you know that especially speaks to um, like art kind of as a tool against white supremacy because a lot of times artists of color don't really have the leisure, I guess, to perfect their art. Like really, it takes a lifetime, I think, to perfect your craft, to perfect your art. Um, constantly figuring out like new ways to like com like compose poems or new ways to like piece things together, and so really just having a little bit of leisure time, I think, to be able to do that, and so creating an opportunity for artists to have a little bit of that leisure time, um, however you can, to be able to create things, I think is important. I think those two responses can be generally um, lumped under the patronage kind of model, yeah. right? It's about like. Um, soliciting artists or, or helping them to, like paying for them to do work or whatever. But I think you can be creative about how you patronize the arts, right? So you could, ho you could host um, an artist talk in your own house or have a little gallery show, you know, where you set up with your friends or something. There's a lot of creative ways that you can um, involve artists in your, in your endeavor and bring them into the loop. Um, if you're going to a protest, find a designer or find an artist and say, help me make my sign. You know, it's maybe not a paid gig, but you know they can probably help you come up with a creative response to that. Uh, yeah. All right. Since we've got, I, I got to ask you like a, a kind of personal geeky question. What is a project you're working on right now that you're geeking out about, or something you're consuming that you're geeking out about? And we've already heard the uh, obligatory Spike Lee reference, but uh, if there's something else that you're listening to, watching, reading that's like helping you, or if you're working on something currently that's kind of giving you life, what is that? Well, um, trying to finish something. Um, <laughs> um, well, I have my project uh, that was actually funded <laughs> two years ago now um, from Charlotte Street, I'm trying to finish. But um, also looking at ways, talking about patronage and, and like, you know, I work full-time and, and, and not-for-profit. That is my job, you know. Um, but finding space to make. Um, just been looking and consuming um, friends' works and other works for myself. But um, I'm trying to um, finalize and close out uh, a really amazing project. Um, hopefully in the next month, month and a half, I can be done with it, happily done with it, um, and move forward. I love people, so portraits... You know, I'm looking at portraits of black and brown queer folk in Kansas City. Um, yeah, just because I, I miss my community, so I'm trying to locate it again. Usually that's what I do, find, go to bars and photograph people, but no. That's cool. Um, what am I consuming? Um, Right now, I would, I'm working on a fourth um, poetry chapbook. It's The Spirit of the Quest, Volume 4. Um, and so that'll be out um, through Kindle Direct Publishing, self-publishing that one um, by January. I'm hoping to have that one done. Um, and then I can, I'm, I'm a weirdo, and I read a lot of mystic Sufi poetry. <laughs> kind of random. I found this free book on an app on my tablet by Kabir. 
um, once and was like, it's free, and read it and was like madly in love. It was like years and years ago. Um, and so that's why I named my poetry collection um, The Spirit of the Quest. It's a quote from a Kabir poem um, where he says, it's the spirit of the quest that helps. I am a slave of the spirit of the quest. And so just kind of this idea that it's not really the destination or the place that you're going that's important. It's just like how you felt when you were doing, when you were going there. Um, and so I really love that. So I read a lot of um, Rumi and um, Kabir and Khalil Gibran is super good. Kind of old, like, mystic. If you're like a 18, if you were born in the 1800s, then I'm probably in love with your poetry. So. <laughs> I'm in the beginning stages of a, a little bit more self-directed project with Stand Up KC, which is unusual. Usually, you know, most of the stuff I do is pretty, like, in response to what the main organizers need, but um, they're getting ready to do another um, cell phone photography exhibit uh, that's from the fast food workers, so that'll be coming up later this fall, and so I'm working on a publication uh, that goes along with that, that uh, compiles some of the photographs, some stories, some statistics. The content is a bit to be determined, but I just finished up doing some interviews with a handful of the workers, and it's funny because I've worked with them for all these years for like seven years now I think and I've barely met any of them I always just work you know with the main organizer and and to hear these stories was really powerful uh, it was it was crazy to sit across from a table and, and hear them tell the struggles that they go through so trying to capture some of that information and, and quote them directly in this publication alongside some of the cell phone photos that they're taking of their own lives and so I'm excited to dig more into that and like I said, we're in the beginning stages, but that'll accompany the exhibit that'll be coming up this fall. So, Well, listen, y'all, I feel good about this. This has been fun. We didn't get to talk about a lot of your work, and uh, when people find you online, they'll see that you, know, you have tons of projects and tons of uh, partnerships with different organizations. Uh, I'd like you to tell everybody where they can find you because uh, I don't know if we have a resource sheet that will go out or any kind of like links that will go out on this event page, but tell them where to find you on social media or your websites, um, and, and uh, we'll wrap up. Yeah. Uh, my website is thenewprogram.net, and that's the British spelling, P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E.net, and I'm on Instagram at thenewprogram. Um, <clears throat> I have a website, but it needs some work. Um, you could go there. I know, right? Um, Instagram is great. A great beginning. Um, yeah, Instagram. Just everyday stuff. Occasional shower pictures. What's your handle? <laughs> Exit area. Um, but I'm completely, um, it's all neck up, so don't worry about the shower pics. Um, really interested in this, like, fat boy kind of queer portraiture. But anyway, Instagram, exit area. <laughs> Um, I'm on Facebook, Nika Renee, um, and then on Instagram as Poet Nika Renee. Sorry about this. And I have cards if anybody needs wants a card. Thank you so much for doing this. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, y'all get, you know, uh, asked to come back some some point during this series because it's going to go on for a while. We're going to be talking about arts as activism for a while. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your deep thoughts and your, your deep responses to these questions. So let's give them all a hand. Thank you. Thank you.